Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of the book of Genesis, chapters 36 and 37. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome tonight to our discussion of Genesis chapters 36 and 37. Here's the theme tonight from Romans that we'll be studying next year. Paul's letter to the Romans. We know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That's from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. St. Paul was a master of the Old Testament scrolls because he had one of the best teachers alive at the time, Rabbi Gamaliel. There are 16 scrolls that make up the Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament, we call it, but they have the Torah, which is the law, the Nevim, which are the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which are the other writings, and um, the T and K, and then they put two uh, consonants in there so it can be pronounced Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim. It makes up the full set of scrolls called the Tanakh, and it's the Hebrew Old Testament. And there's also the Talmud. Now, the Talmud is a collection of writings that covers the full gamut of the Jewish law and tradition, compiled and edited between the third and sixth centuries. And the Talmud in Hebrew means learning. It's appropriate for a text that people devote their whole lives to study and to master. The Talmud is divided into six general segments, sections called orders, and there are six orders of the Mishnah. They cover specific things like seeds, that's agriculture, or the Jewish holidays, or specific things about women, or damages, those are more legal things with land rights and stuff, holy things, according to the temple, and purity laws. And the Talmud is divided into these six general sections called orders, and each of which gets further divided into tractates, and each Meshita comprises parakim or chapters and every paragraph within these chapters is referred to as a mishnah now a mishnah is an authoritative collection of exegetical material embodying the oral tradition of jewish law and the forming of the first part of the talmud there were many many oral traditions. And uh, I want to look at some of those tonight. Jewish scholars take scripture study extremely seriously. It's a lifelong pursuit. And Gamaliel was a leading authority in the Sanhedrin in the first century AD, and he was the son of Simon ben Hillel, the grandson of the great Jewish teacher Hillel the Elder. Gamaliel died around 52 AD, and he was recognized as a Pharisee and a doctorate of Jewish law. You remember him from Acts chapter 5? He was a man held in great esteem by all the Jews, and when Peter and John were arrested, he said, do not condemn the apostles of Jesus to death. Let's wait it out and see. And he was very wise. The book of Acts recounts that Paul the Apostle 
apostle was born in Tarsus, but he grew up in Jerusalem at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel, according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. Photios, in other writings, Photios, one of Constantinople, records that Gamaliel was baptized, uh, was baptized, a baptized Christian by Saints Peter and Paul, the, or Peter and John, excuse me, the apostle, together with his son, Abibo, sometimes called Ababas or Ababas, and Nicodemus, another great uh, Pharisee scholar. Clementine literature suggests that Gamaliel maintained secrecy about his conversion to Christianity because he could continue on as a member of the Sanhedrin and covertly assist other fellow Christians. And so Gamaliel became a master, he was a master of Jewish scripture, but now he is a Catholic saint. Uh, and so we can say, Saint Gamaliel, pray for us. The Eastern Orthodox Church venerates Gamaliel as a saint on August 2nd, and the tradition holds that's when his relics were found, along with the relics of St. Stephen the Martyr, Ababas, Gamaliel's son, and Nicodemus. The Catholic Church celebrates it on August 3rd, and they said that it was a fifth century in the 5th century by a miracle of his body, Gamaliel's body being discovered and taken to the cathedral in Pisa, Italy. Now, where were Gamaliel's relics found? In the tomb of St. Stephen the Martyr. He was a first uh, the first deacon and the first martyr, St. Stephen, we hear about him in Acts 6 and 7. And you remember who was presiding over the stoning death of Stephen, don't you? Saul, soon to be Paul. And Stephen knelt down in the very last words he said. He cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That prayer was heard for Paul. It was also heard for Paul's teacher, Gamaliel, and they both became fierce Christ followers. In 415 AD, a priest by the name of Lucian brought this message to Bishop John of Jerusalem. Strange news of a message he had for the bishop. Make haste to open our sepulcher. By our means, God may open to the world the door of his clemency, and he may take pity on his people in the universal tribulation. This was a great time of tribulation for the Christians. The message had come from St. Stephen and his sepulchral companions, Gamali, Nicodemus and Ababo. He had a dream. The relics of the four men were found according to the directions given to Father Lucian by Gamaliel in the vision in the dream, who revealed that he had been buried in his own estate about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. And on August 3rd, the church's liturgical lesson on August 3rd says this, at the rumor of what had occurred, a great crowd came together. Many of them who were sick and weak from various ailments were went away perfectly cured. The sacred body of St. Stephen was then carried with great honor to the Holy Church of Zion. So, uh, there's a painting of this scene, this dream that the priest Lucian had where they opened the tomb of Stephen the martyr and found these four other bodies, Gamaliel, Nicodemus, and Ababo, all four buried together. Why do I bring this up? Because some of the most learned Jewish scholars at the time of Jesus Christ came to believe that he was the true Messiah, and they became Catholic saints because their Judaism was 
destroyed? No, fulfilled by Catholicism. And so we have to see sometimes the bigger picture, and we don't always see it. And Paul understands everything Jewish. He is a phenomenal theologian for the earliest Christians and still for us today. And Paul tells the Romans that we know in everything God works for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose in everything. Everything, really? Everything? Everything. Even Dinah? Even the evil rape of Dinah? God could bring something good from that? Are you kidding me? That led to murder. That led to Dinah's brother, Simeon and Levi, avenging the honor of their sister, their rape sister, and destroying the entire town. Dinah, you will remember, went out to visit the women of the land in Shechem. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar the Hivite, saw Dinah, he had to have her. And he seized her. He took Jacob's only daughter and he lay with her. And scripture says he humbled her. He humbled her. It's an interesting way to say he raped her. How are we possibly to explain this? How can any good come from this? Paul says in everything God works for good for those who love him. Okay, stick with me here. Remember back in Genesis 32. The same night Jacob arose and took his two wives... His two, he, this is before he's coming to meet Esau, the night he fights with the angel. Remember this. Before he saw that angel, that night, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two maids, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took everything with them across the stream and likewise everything he had. We read over that and we didn't think anything of it. Not the Jewish scholars not in the Mishnah. They asked questions. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled him until the breaking of the day. What's wrong? Jacob had 12 children at this time. Benjamin's not born yet, but Dinah was. He had 12 children and it says that he only took 11 across the stream. That same night, Jacob arose, took his two wives, his two maids, and 11 children. One child was left behind. Which child? In the Talmud, in the Mishnah, one possibility of the child that he did not take in his personal company was his one and only daughter, Dinah. Why? Why? He's going to wrestle that night with the angel. They're going to wrestle all night until the break of day. Jacob is begging for a blessing. He pleaded and pleaded and pleaded to be blessed. He knew he had stolen that blessing from Esau. He had been wrestling with that sin for over 20 years. Please bless me. Please bless me freely. He wants a free blessing, not a stolen one. What is your name? The angel said, and he said, Jacob, Jacob, the one who supplants, the one who deceives, the one who stole the blessing, circumvented it from his brother. Your name shall no more be Jacob, but Israel. You have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And there he blessed him freely and renamed him Israel. You have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob's fortitude and Jacob's perseverance to be forgiven by both God and man was granted. He now has a new name. He has the legitimate right to the Father's blessing. He's fought for 20 years with his inner demon. He has reconciled with God and with man. But remember, he would forever continue to limp. He'll never forget. We can't do deceitful things and then ask God the Father to bless them. We can't live a double life. God's not fond of duplicity. Jacob had striven with God for forgiveness 
And now he has freely been given God's blessing. And he had also striven with men, his brother Esau, men, plural. First, his father, the deceit of stealing the blessing from blind Isaac. He had striven with his older brother Esau. He had striven for years with Uncle Laban, men, plural. He had striven against God and men, but he was ready to ask forgiveness and he's going to try to make amends. So remember when he sent those waves of gifts before him to his brother, before they met up, he delivered into the hands of the servants every drove by itself. And he said to the servants, pass on before me and put a space between the drove and the drove and the drove and the drove. It was five waves. What was Jacob doing? He's buttering him up. He's buttering up Esau. He had a present for his brother Esau. Remember these five waves? 200 she-goats, 200 ewes, 200 mulch camels and their colts. That means they're female. 40 cows, 20 she-asses, females, 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 females. So he can quickly multiply his flocks and herds. This is a great gift. All those females to rapidly increase the number of animals in Esau's flock. But if he really wanted to butter him up, what else would he have included? Female humans rapidly to increase the number of Esau's tribe. Princesses of Israel, his nation, he would have given to Esau. In this culture, he might have offered princess brides. But many rabbis over the years suspect that Jacob purposely hid his one and only daughter, Dinah, from his brother Esau. Ah, that night Jacob rose with his two wives, his two mates, and his 11 children, hiding Dinah. Some Jewish commentaries record that Dinah was locked in a chest so that Esau could not see her beauty and want her, asking Jacob for his only daughter. This is part of the rabbi commentary. After the brother, the oral tradition, after the brother made peace and the yoke was broken, as Isaac had promised in his blessing, the brothers parted ways and Jacob did not come back like he said he would. Remember? Dinah was safe now. And when they arrived in Shechem, she could be let out of the box. This beautiful coming of age, Dinah was not locked up anymore. And the outgoing girl raised with all brothers went out to see some of the other town women. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw Dinah, he seized her, he laid with her and humbled her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the maiden and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamar, saying, get me this maiden for my wife. Now the rabbis debate, Jacob should have trusted God. Perhaps Dinah would have been a good wife for Esau. Maybe the helpmate that God created, a helpmate showing Esau the way back to Abraham's God, Isaac's God, Jacob's God. When Esau was 40, you'll remember he took Judith, a Hittite wife. He took Basemeth, another Hittite wife. He made life unbearably bitter for his mother, Rebekah, these Hittite, these Canaanite wives. Perhaps the entire city of Shechem could have also been converted to Jacob's God through Dinah. The rabbis believe a woman can change the culture. They were pro-woman. They knew what a woman could do, a helpmate could do. By Dinah marrying Shechem the Hivite after the defilement instead of the calculated, cold-blooded murder of the entire city, 
God hates rape. God hates murder. This is God's pedagogy, the way he teaches his people over time. The rabbis realized the powerful effect that women have on culture and on spirituality. This woman, Dinah, and the God of Jacob could help this whole culture change, perhaps. In his letter to women, John Paul II said this, as I wrote in my apostolic letter, the church desires to give thanks to the most holy trinity for the mystery of woman and for every woman for all that constitutes the eternal measure of her feminine dignity for the great works of god which throughout human history have been accomplished in her and through her thank you every woman for this simple fact of being a woman though the insight through is so much a part of your womanhood, you enrich the world's understanding and help to make human relations more honest and more authentic. Women will increasingly play a part in the solution of serious problems of the future, leisure time, the quality of life, migration, social services, euthanasia, drugs, healthcare, and ecology, etc. In all these areas, a greater presence of woman in society will prove most valuable, for it will help to manifest the contradictions present when society is organized solely according to the criteria of efficiency and productivity. And it will force systems to be redesigned in a way which favors the processes of humanization which mark the civilization of love. The time has come to condemn vigorously the types of sexual violence which frequently have women for their object and to pass laws which effectively defend them from such violence. Nor can we fail in the name of the respect due to the human person to condemn the widespread hedonistic and commercial culture which encourages the systematic exploitation of sexuality and corrupts even very young girls into letting their bodies be used for profit. Now, we've come a long way haven't we? A very long way, right? Now Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were in with cattle in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they come. We see some passivity there on the part of the father, Jacob, the father of Dinah, acceptance of what happens without an active response of resistance. Shechem's father, however, Hamar went out to speak directly to Jacob. That was very brave of him. The sons of Jacob came in from the field. When they heard of it, they were very indignant and very angry because Shechem had wrought folly in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing ought not to have been done. And Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Only on this one condition will we consent to you that you become as we are and every male of you be circumcised. And on the third day, after circumcision is the day that the brothers Simeon and Levite come in to avenge the defilement of their sister Dinah. On the third day, two of the sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came into the city of unawares and killed all the men. They slew Hamar and his son Shechem with the sword. They took Dinah out of Shechem's house and they went away. Now, this murderous act, this bloodshed will cost number two, Simeon and number three son of Jacob, Levi, by both by Leah. This is going to cost them the birthright. It's going to cost them a possibility of the father's blessing. The sons of Jacob 
came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister Dinah had been defiled. They take the flocks, the herds, the asses, whatever was in the city, whatever was in the fields, all their wealth, they take as plunder their little ones and their wives, the little ones and wives of Shechem, all that was in their houses, they capture and make their prey. So women and children now become objects of plunder and part of Jacob's nation. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you brought trouble on me by making odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Pezzarites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should Shechem treat our sister as a harlot? Can anything good come from the evil of rape? We know, says Paul, that everything, in everything God works for good, for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. What good could possibly come from rape? One school of rabbinic thought records the oral tradition that Dinah conceived a baby in her defilement. Pope John Paul in his letter says, in contrast to these sorts of perversion, which great appreciation must be shown to those women who with heroic love for the child they have conceived, proceed with a pregnancy resulting from the injustice of rape. Whew. Dinah the rabbis say, was pregnant from the rape of Shechem. A Jewish tradition claims that Jacob was penalized for preventing Dinah from marrying his brother Esau. Before his encounter, Jacob sent his family across the Jabbok River, as we're told in Genesis 32. That same night he arose, he took two of his wives, his two maidservants, and 11 of his 12 children. The Midrash asks, where was Dinah? And answers that Jacob had locked her in a chest, saying that Esau should not see her and take her from me. God told Esau, you withheld Dinah from your brother and due to her good attributes, God told Jacob this, excuse me, you withheld Dinah from your brother and due to her good attributes, she could have helped reform him. Since you did not want to give her to Esau, who was circumcised, you punished through her being taken, you are punished through her being taken by one who was uncircumcised. That would be Shechem, the son of Hamar. You did not give her in legitimate matrimony. Therefore, you are being punished, Jacob, by her being taken by Shechem illegitimately. Another Midrash account said that Dinah was impregnated by Shechem and gave birth to a seneth. Jacob's sons wanted to kill the baby, so it would not be said that there was harlotry in the tents of Jacob. Jacob, however, brought a gold plate and wrote on the name of the Holy One, blessed is he, according to another tradition, he recorded on the plate the episode with Shechem. Jacob hung the plate around Ascent's neck and sent her away. God dispatched the angel Michael to bring her to the house of Potiphar in Egypt. Hmm, interesting. Another exegetical account says that Dinah cast a seneth on the wall of Egypt, the wall surrounding the palace. And that day Potiphar went out for a walk with his servants next to the wall and heard the infant crying. And when they brought the baby to him, he saw the plate and the record of the episode. Potiphar told his servants, this girl is the daughter of great ones. He brought her to his home and gave her a wet nurse. Potiphar's wife was barren and she raised a cent as a seneth as her own daughter. Consequently, she was called a seneth daughter of Potiphera. 
and she was raised in the home of Potiphar and his wife as if she were their own daughter. Now remember this, okay? In contemporary Jewish art, there is an artist, Richard McBee, who writes or paints, writes in painting. These are contemporary, but this is the rape of Dinah. Dinah innocently went out to explore her surroundings and was raped by Shechem, prince of the city. Now, the slaughter of the men of Shechem. Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi, wreak vengeance for the rape of their sister, murdering the entire male population and plundering the city. You see, they've been circumcised. Now, Jacob saves a seneth. Dinah, raped by Shechem, gives birth to a seneth. And the baby was seen as the child of shame by Dinah's murderous brothers. To save her, she was sent away by her grandfather Jacob with a necklace that identified her as holy and taken by an angel down to Egypt, as recorded in the Midrash. Aseneth arrives in Egypt now. Once in Egypt, Aseneth was adopted by the childless couple, Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar, in the Midrash again. Aseneth is discovered by Joseph. Joseph, fully accustomed to his role as Egyptian prime minister, this is later in the story, is adored by all the Egyptian women, but he notices one shy maiden who seems to be different. Hmm. Aseneth brings Joseph home to meet Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar. Pharaoh then gave Aseneth to Joseph as his wife inadvertently reconnecting Joseph to his true Jewish past. Aseneth confirms Joseph, Jacob's crossed blessing. Her role was to remind him in simple myriad of ways of his family, his heritage, his role as Jewish leader, especially as she became mother to his two sons, future tribes of Israel, Manasseh and Ephraim. As simultaneous survivor of sexual violence and bearer of identity and tradition in a foreign environment, Aseneth assured the Jewish future. So we know that in everything, God can work good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We'll get back to more of that a little later. This is a painting of Dinah kissing her daughter, Aseneth, goodbye. Her daughter of rape with Shechem, kissing her goodbye as she's being taken away to Egypt. Okay. Then we get to Genesis chapter 36, and we have a whole running chapter of Esau's descendants. Esau. His other name will be called Edom. He takes wives from the Canaanites initially. I'm going to skip through most of this. He's blessed as, as Jacob prayed that blessing, what was left that he could give to him. But he has cattle. He has land. He has members, numerous of his household property. Uh, his possessions become too great. Both boys are blessed greatly. Their positions are too great that they must split even further apart so that they, the land can support both of their growing kingdoms. Esau goes to Sire, the hill country of Sire, which is Edom. So if you look at a map, Ammon at the top, then the kingdom of Moab, remember the Ammonites and the Moabites, these are Lot's daughters by incest, paternal incest, uh, make those kingdoms of Ammon and Moab. Now we have the kingdom of Edom, which will be Esau's people, and they'll be the Edomites, also a thorn in Israel's side down the road. Remember when Isaac's father gave him that leftover blessing? Father, you've given the blessing away. Is there anything left for me? He said, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. But when you break loose, you shall break his yoke from your neck. That happened when forgiveness came, when the two brothers kissed 
embraced, there was forgiveness, and the yoke was free, and the two brothers become independent, separate nations. That was part one of the book of Genesis, chapters 36 and 37, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.